Hey everybody, I'm Bobby Salveson. And I'm Michael Monaco, and together we are the Hazmat Guys, connecting the Hazmat community near and far with knowledge, insight, and real-world examples in an effort to make your job just a little bit easier and safer. Now, let's take a minute to hear from today's sponsors. Hey, Mike, pop quiz. What is the standard go-to method for emergency decon? Uh, That's pretty easy. Wet decon, right? Well, you know, you're not the only one that may be thinking that, but it's actually dry decon. No, 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 no. How many times have I heard dilution is the solution to pollution? (laughs) Actually, too many. And that's the issue. Makes sense if you think about it. Without the use of water, we don't need to spend extra time setting up traditional showers or pools. And there's no wastewater afterwards. And you're not going to freeze anybody to death if it's below 60 degrees. Check out firstlinetech.com slash dry decon. First Line Technology has a whole webpage dedicated to the methodology and links to plenty of dry decon resources. See for yourself why dry decon with FiberTech should be your go-to immediate decon solution. Let's get to the show. Hey, everybody out there in Hazmat land. I'm Michael Monaco. This is the Hazmat Guys. I'm with Bob. This is episode 392. I'm super excited today. We got some cool shit going on. That is very true. (laughs) (laughs) That is very good stuff. Yes. um, Yeah, I'm I'm out on assignment uh, 3,000 miles away from Mike and at the same exact time, at the same exact place with Steve, who is the guy in the middle of our little uh, show here. We have a guest on, and uh, we are kind of showcasing what the hell we're, what Steve does. What is Steve? Steve, what is, Steve. Yeah, so who, who is, is Steve? Steve? That's right. That's, let's, that's the let's good question. Start with, well, before we get into that, where they, where can they find us? Where What's happening oh, oh, that's in good. the future? Great question. Um, no idea. We're not anywhere. We're, we're oh, let me see. We are going to... Baltimore, which is in what a couple weeks? Couple weeks, two weeks, I think. Two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. And then we have Massachusetts in September, and that's basically the year. Um, and you, of course, you can find us on the Happy Hour, uh, the Hazmat Guys Specialist Happy Hour. If you're a specialist, if you're not a specialist, get your specialist. Where you can find us the fourth Thursday of every month, nineteen hundred hours Eastern Standard Time, and you can find it at the HazmatGuys.com/slash/happy. Always lives there, um, and. Also, go and check out, jeez, uh, that's how we know Steve, uh, the FDNY Shirt Locker, uh, where you can go and buy some cool swag. Uh, you can find that at FDNYHazmat1.com. They just restock the Shirt Locker, and there's actually a lot of new stuff going in there because I'm helping them build that website. So uh, more can follow. But anyway, hi, Steve. Hello, Tell Rob. us about how yourself. You? Good. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess I should get it out of the way now because I'm going to be accused of not. Um, so my background, believe it or not, was uh, I was formally trained as an aircraft rescue firefighting specialist by the United States Marine Corps. You were in the military? A hundred percent. That's so like, weird. I, I didn't – I was not aware of that. Yeah, yeah. You spend 30 seconds with me and you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what that led to was uh, an interesting dynamic training experience. Um, and then subsequently, uh, I got a civilian job at, uh, at a regional airport in New Jersey. And a couple of things that I learned trending there is, 
you know, once you have an ARF certificate um, and you're stationed at an airport, which is usually as boring as watching paint dry, um, waiting for something, of course, negative to happen. And uh, a lot of times it doesn't. And although there are a lot of emergencies for aircraft that occur, what we call transitional flight, taking off and landing, uh, a lot of incidents occur nowhere near an airport. So one of the things that we trained with um, in both the military and the civilian side is, well, when the aircraft falls short of the field or within a few minutes of taking off and has managed to get three or four miles away, that's going to require a response from your local fire department. And uh, there are a whole myriad of hazards associated with working in, on, and around aircraft when they're functioning 100% normal and systems are all in the green. Well, now when they've impacted with the ground, there's a whole host of, of stuff that needs to be handled, especially looking at it through the hazmat lens. Um, an aircraft crash or uh, even a low impact incident still is a tremendous hazmat scene from the jump. You know, okay, it, so, it's funny because we, we good. Good. All right. Hey, so in, when, when, when we were on the job way back when all of nine days ago, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we would talk to higher ups about getting ARF trained and their answer to us almost always was, well, we've got two airports in the city and there's plenty of ARF people at the airport. When there's an incident, they don't even use us. But since 9-11, the New York City has seen 13 aviation accidents and all of them have been outside of the airport. So <clears throat> when Steve started coming up with this idea, it made so much sense to be able to train regular firefighters on shit that would happen outside the airport on equipment that people only inside the airport are trained on. That's right. a great way to say it. <laughs> right? <laughs> like these things fly all across the goddamn country. They're in the airport for all of like 30 seconds of movement. And the rest of the time they are over area where if something happens, we, the first responder are responding to it. To that point, um, just like everything else in the world is driven by the financial cost, the FAA has a standard, the Federal Aviation Regulation Part 139, it, it's a nuance, but that determines your ARF protection at the airport. And that's based on the takeoff and landing weight of your largest aircraft, the number of people on board, so on and so forth. And that indexes your airport from one to five. Um, and that's what keeps your flight ops operational. They will not have extra ARF personnel and ARF apparatus to maintain the index. So when you send an ARF response off station, you've downgraded your index at the airport, oh. which impacts your flight operations. So the Port Authority does not want to send a, a truck off station and then have to tell their major airline carriers, flight ops are in a holding pattern right now. Let's start backing up the New York City pattern because we just sent two ARF trucks to an incident out on the Grand Central Parkway. That, uh, that makes right, sense. So it would be why I haven't seen any Port Authority ever in any of the airline industry accidents in New York City. Give me one, like, all right, you're saying, I'm thinking, again, from an untrained person, I'm thinking to myself, okay, a plane falls out of the sky. What's the big deal? 
you know, it's it's an aluminum. I've flown on planes. I, you go up in the wings, the doors pop off. You got those fancy, you know, rafts that come off wherever the hell they are. I'll grab some peanuts and start making grabs. So like what? Like give me one one thing I wouldn't even think of. So, if you're talking a large body aircraft that takes an emergency landing, and a large body aircraft doesn't have to be a 747, we could talk about even say a Gulfstream Five, and those are corporate aircraft that are flying all over from small municipal airports to major aircrafts. One of these has an emergency and it comes down. If it came from a pressurized altitude, and now that aircraft is still pressurized, and your local volunteer firefighter gets up and grabs that door handle and pulls that door handle to open it, both him and the door are coming off the aircraft because the aircraft has not depressurized. Wait, what? Are you serious? Oh, yes. I know they pressurize. They they would hold pressure, though? Yes, they have to land and depressurize prior to unlocking the door. You is can there like a little at, screw that you can undo on the outside to like 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 a pressure cooker? There is an emergency depressurization that you can do what? from the outside of a pressurized aircraft. Absolutely. You can Google search it and look up uh, attempts to open aircraft while still pressurized on the ground. And it is it is quite a sight to see um, that emergency slide that you talked about. If you open up the aircraft and the slide activates, that's going to come out right where you're standing. Um, and and th- these are all things that we've talked about um, on the military aspect. Um, one of the things that we deal with all the time are ejection seats and munitions safety. And imagine if you're a pilot and you lost consciousness on the impact. And the last thing you remember was you were about to crash. And now you're coming to as ARF is trying to affect a rescue. When you come to, and the last thing you remember was I was about to crash, your next move is to grab the ejection seat and fire yourself <laughs> off. So one of the first things we do is we disable that mechanism because we don't want to go for the ride with it. Now, is that like a car? You kind of open the hood and disconnect the battery? It's a little bit more complicated than okay. that. There are some safety <laughs> pins that have to go in very specific places. Um, and to that point, uh, munitions have to be safety in much the same way safety pins go in the correct we also have to pin in safe landing gear. Um, the ARF training that the military goes through is a six-month live-in fire academy down in Texas, which takes you from fire one, fire two, hazmat operations, and then the ARF portion um, to be cleared to work around these aircraft. The, the joke always was, no matter how technologically advanced your airframe is and how comprehensive your maintenance program is, gravity will eventually always win. That is all right. So what? what now, now I am, I am, I am very intrigued. All right. So from a hazmat point of view, right? Like hazardous materials operation. What kind of things would a first responder, operations level guy expect from a hazmat point of view to encounter at the scene of, um, let's even say, just a, an emergency landing, like on the on the highway? I don't know if that ever happens, but. I'll pull that Great out. Great example. Um, and actually, one of the case studies that, that we discussed in my class is my old first through area, Engine 81. Shout out to the North Bronx. Uh, small single engine Piper landed on the Major Deegan Expressway. That particular model aircraft is has a, what we call a magneto-driven engine. Magneto is just a, it's like a capacitor that generates its next spark for the firing of the cylinders based on the rotation of the prop. If the magneto hasn't been disengaged, and the prop 
turns, you could actually jumpstart the engine of that aircraft. So for the smaller single engine aircraft, your Cessnas, your Pipers, your, uh, your crop dusters, we would want to access the engine compartment and disconnect the magneto. Because if that aircraft moves, um, there's a possibility that the propeller could be uh, forced in a direction that would then cause the engine to, at the very least, take one power turn, which is more than enough to take a, a limb off a first responder. Uh, those aircraft, now that, that have landed um, on highways that are not runways, you have to immediately consider stabilizing that aircraft. That landing gear landed on a surface not there's not a section of the Deegan that doesn't have a significant pothole. I almost lost a Jeep in one once. <laughs> you can't imagine that that landing gear is now doing what it's intended to do and keep that aircraft in a safe, stable manner. So you need to do some significant cribbing. We're talking sometimes 30 inches from the bottom of a wing to the ground. If it's a low wing aircraft, if it's a high wing aircraft, even more. Now, is, uh, just that, is that just fear that the, the landing gear will collapse? The landing gear absolutely can collapse. 100 uh, percent another great thing is landing gear is very expensive so there's a fusible link on the wheel assembly for example and when the pilot lands and he gets on the brakes really hard the brakes tend to overheat to not blow out it and a tire which is an expensive repair the fusible link will melt and then discharge all the air in the tire that way rather than blow out the tire so if an aircraft just landed on the Deegan, he wants to stop pretty quick. So he was on the brakes pretty hard. Those brakes are hot. If you approach 90 degrees from the wheel assembly and that fusible link goes, you could potentially be hit with the fusible link, which is about the size of a 22 coming out as fast as a nine millimeter. Wow. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I kind of feel like I kind of feel like this should all have been covered in like firefighting 101. Um, like the, I don't think we've I don't think I've ever sat through any kind of aircraft emergency whatsoever. These are literally no. the first time I've ever hearing any of this. All right, wait, I got I got one for you. Because these are prevalent. I, I've gone to quite a few of these things in my short time uh helicopters right they I, i've gone to like four or five of these things and when they go down they go down pretty spectacularly hey listeners the hazmat guys have some great news for you and your organization we are really stepping up our brand of in-person training in addition to the great content you get on demand now we know what you're thinking but this is already incredibly great stuff and how could it possibly get better all I can say is, wait until we're in front of you. When we gather the best of the best from across this planet and even beyond, and assemble an instructional cadre that is seriously second to none. And now we have a ton of ways to help you, your team, or your organization get to a level that makes everybody proud. From subscriptions, on-demand, hybrid methods, to full in-person goodness. You can contact me, Bob, at thehazmatguys.com to schedule a call and find a solution that works for you. And every participant of an in-person class gets a free one-year premium subscription, which sounds pretty good. Hmm. So contact me at bob at thehazmatguys.com and get some more information. Yeah. Um, some of the things that... Uh... <laughs> So your, your, your aircraft have the ability to glide and helicopters don't have that ability. The, the lack of lateral wings makes it difficult. They can do something called auto rotate, uh, which is more or less a controlled 
crash. Um, and everyone wants to talk about aircraft, whether, whether it's a fixed wing or a rotor wing, uh, fuel, fuel, fuel. Well, avgas is just racing fuel and jet fuel is really just kerosene. So you, you have a flammability hazard there. But now when you're talking about a rotor wing aircraft, they've effectively phased out aluminum rotor blades. So when you look at rotor blades now, they're all carbon fiber. And as soon as it's there. Is, is a rotor blade the top one or the tail one? Both and all of the above. Okay. So okay. anything that spins. And any of the spinny things on okay. a helicopter are rotors. You have I feel like he's, feel like he's talking down to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's Because believe it or not, there actually are some aircraft designs that don't have a tail rotor. They use a vector exhaust or a vector jet engine turbine. Um, and those are very common in your medevac helicopters to reduce the risk of having a ground person literally walk into the tail rotor, which... If you've ever set up a landing zone, not walking to a tail rotor is a huge thing. When I was in the Marine Corps, you'd ride in the CH-53. There's a big arrow that says exit left so that the Marines don't walk out and walk into the tail rotor. Um, so you, the tail rotor is about you know chest height for me, and I'm 5'8". Um, the main rotors can dip within four feet of the ground on some models because they are flexible. They kind of like, like a bendy straw, so that there is some, some bounce to the rotor. Um, but if they if they impact trees or if the helicopter ends up on its side, uh, like the medevac helicopter that crashed in Philadelphia uh, a year or two ago, those rotor blades disintegrated. And now that scene is effectively contaminated with carbon fibers. Uh, so even if you don't see fire or heavy smoke, you need to be on your SCBA because you inhale those carbon fibers. Carbon fiber is an issue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You inhale carbon fibers. It's very similar to inhaling asbestos. You're not exhaling them. There's no surgery to remove them. It'll create nodules in your lungs as the tissue grows around them and eventually lead to they are are known respiratory inhalation carcinogen. Wow. And that's every helicopter rotor blade. Um, They phased out aluminum probably the early 90s. Can you wet it? Like, can you throw like a like a fog line and kind of knock it down or absolutely you you could even use foam w- without using it as a firefighting agent just because that will help keep things tacky um uh, wow. the, the marine corps at, at rotor wing stations kept hairspray on the rescue response vehicles for when rotor blades were damaged to literally spray aquanet hairspray and create a, a, a tacky surface contaminant that would at least hold the fibers down to reduce that respiratory hazard so there is, I mean, you approach any kind of helicopter. What are the chances that a helicopter can crash without damaging a blade? Slim to none. It is possible, um, but you might have one rotor blade completely disintegrated, another rotor blade, um, you know, damaged and broken, possibly hanging from the remnant of the fibers. Or if the pilot's good enough, you could order rotate down, just really collapse the landing gear, end up on its belly, and the rotor blades are intact. Um, so any any helicopter that got downed emergency, you should be approaching with an SCBA no matter what. Absolutely. And when, when you look at the the pilot, very few pilots just fall out of the sky. Something's gone wrong. He knows he's in a bad way. So he's going to be going through his checklist to do everything he can to maintain his altitude and his airworthiness. He's not shutting down critical systems. So if he does crash, the odds are his fuel systems, his fuel pumps engaged, his engine ignitions are engaged, his radio systems, his uh, 
radar systems are engaged. When you look at the crash wreckage photos from the crash in Philadelphia with that helicopter, you can see some smoldering of wires. You know he's leaking fuel. There's a, a potential for a flash fire and ignition hazard. So even if it's not on fire on arrival, that situation can rapidly deteriorate with very little to no warning. Um, and you can find yourself while you're effecting a rescue now. So we always preach um, approach with a charged hand line at the very least, preferably a phone line to knock down that fire should that fire arise. Um, and then you have other special hazards that happen to be a medevac aircraft. So that has compressed oxygen cylinders. It may even have liquid oxygen carbon fiber cylinders because the potential to have people on oxygen for the entire flight. So now you'll have a liquid oxygen component with a potential fuel leak and ignition sources, not to mention um, as we move on and on um, through technology, weight equals fuel, fuel equals money. So aircraft are becoming more and more composite honeycomb constructions, polymer plastics. And I'm not talking about the rotor blades or the flight surfaces. I'm talking about the fuselages themselves. Uh, the lighter we make them, the easier they are to fly, the less fuel they consume, the farther they can fly. I got a stupid question. Sure. Fuselage, you said it, and I always asked it. What it fuselage is where the people go? Yep. So okay. you have you have your 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 nose and your tail. You have your wings. You have your flight surfaces, which are the back of the wings, the flaps, the ailerons that are moved. And by the way, those are actuated with very high pressure hydraulic systems that are double redundant and have check valves. So you could have trapped. Uh, if a wing comes off a large body aircraft, you could have trapped hydraulic fluid in the lines under operating pressure. Just waiting for Joe Firefighter to come over, sever that line with a saw because he thinks he's helping, and get a face full of 1,200, 1,500 PSI hydraulic fluid. Um, wow. So then you have, besides the wings, the fuselage where the people go. If an engine is mounted below the wings, we call that a nacelle. Uh, there's all of these ter terminologies that the ARF guys will throw around. Um, that's also covered in, in, in my class, so we, so we know. So we don't say things like the pointy end up front or the, uh, or the floppy end in the back. We sound a little bit more professional when we're giving a report to the chief. I like the floppy end, okay? <laughs> all right. Then, all right, so now I have another question then. So, so far we've only talked about the outside operations. I know guys are thinking this because I'm thinking this. You get in there. And now you're inside and maybe you have to, nobody's asking you to fly the plane, but if you get into that cockpit, are there things that I may have to do? Because I've seen cockpits, I've seen the million freaking buttons that are in there. Are there good buttons and bad buttons? Well, just like anything else, there are certainly good buttons and there are bad buttons. Uh, and to that point, uh, when we're dealing with the military aircraft on the military side and we would have to, there are very specific things that need to be accomplished in the aircraft. The three biggest things are throttles, bottles, batteries. We want to throttle those engines down if they're still above uh, above um, idle. We want to take them all the way down to idle and then disengage them and shut them off. That's the throttle switch. The bottles are the fire T-handles, the onboard firefighting systems. The mechanics are not real big fans of us firing those off, but it's a lot of work for them to clean that agent out of the engine nacelle. But at the risk of losing an, an entire airframe, you do what you have to do. And then you, of course, want to hit the battery switches because all of the aircraft 
uh, systems are double redundant and they are powered by, yes, you guessed it, everyone's favorite lithium ion battery cells. As a matter of fact, we were dealing dealing with lithium ion batteries um, since I I have a book from the NAVAIR that uh, has a page on lithium ion batteries and it was printed in 1984. Uh, they were the primary batteries in aviation long before they were powering your your Sony Walkman. Uh, so the, those systems do need to be disengaged, and there's there's just a whole myriad of things that that need to be done. And obviously, if you have a, a high impact crash and you have a full disintegration of an airframe, a lot of these things are now a moot point. Um, however, there are. Yeah, that, crashes, they do need to be addressed. That was going to be my next question, right? Like, so you do get a a, a full scale freaking, you know, impact. Whatever, you know, that the the whole thing's just in pieces. In a situation like that, what kinds of things does that first responder need to be aware might still exist? So first and foremost, that's a, that's a great question. In the event of you have a, a, a severe high impact crash and you've got a total disintegration of the airframe, a uh, very quick survey is going to tell you that you probably don't have a viable life safety hazard. So at that point, the next thing is all of the alphabet agencies, the NTSB, the FAA, possibly the FBI, I don't think really the CIA, but all of the federal agencies are going to want to come in. They're going to want to do their investigation, and they don't want to find out that, well, we thought we did a good thing, and here we swept this wreckage up with a dustpan, and you don't pour it into a garbage can and hand it to them. You pretty much have to now cordon off the area and leave everything exactly the way it was because they want to find that little piece of cockpit that might have some switches on it. And they want to look at what position those switches are in. They want to find some fuel and test the fuel. Was this fuel airworthy? Was there water contamination that caused an engine failure? Um, They're certainly looking for the the cockpit recorders and, and, and the flight data recorders. These are all huge things that evidence at this incident preservation is now your your paramount things so how does that correspond uh, i'll go back I'm, I'm pretty sure bob was at this run uh shortly after 9 11 there was a plane that went down in the rockaways oh and, i was there no, yeah, y- yep you now in that situation you now have a mix of aircraft and structure so what kind of things would somebody operating in that kind of situation have to be aware of right because clearly we're we're going in and we're screwing up the the crash scene but we're doing it because we've got you know structures to save and and potential victims on the ground so how do those two mush together so that that incident that that's usually and and I, I hope for for most people that's a once in a lifetime once in a career response right Bob only had to do that once um, yeah. but when you look at an aircraft that just took off from a major airport and it's a large body that that is your quintessential definition of an MCI you've got a hundred plus passengers on board that aircraft you've got hundreds of people on the ground well that plane was going somewhere and it it probably had full tanks so now you've got upwards of you know thousands of pounds of fuel because of course aviation has to be different so we we, we consider fuel in, in pounds not gallons which equates to thousands of gallons of fuel so if you're not attempting to fight these fires with foam you're not making any headway you know you've got now residential structures that are being fed with jet fuel fires you've got jet fuel running into the below ground void spaces your subways your manhole vaults they're not going out with water they're either going to burn themselves out or you're putting enough foam down into these spaces to 
you know, suppress those fuel vapors and put these fires out. So right off the bat, you have to be thinking your large scale foam operations because that was a high impact crash with several, what was it, blocks of fire, Bob? Yeah. Yeah, it was multiple, multiple houses on fire at one time. Yeah. That's, dude, you, you know what? I, I I don't think I've had a guest on that I, uh, I sounded like a, an idiot. Yeah, but it's so, it's, it's so, it is so crazy because, you know, I, I heard Steve talk about this class. I've never sat in on it. I haven't taken it. I haven't even had the opportunity to, to sit and listen to it at conferences. And always in the back of my mind, I was like, what do you really talk about for like, one hour, two hours, eight hours, yeah. you know, like an airplane crashes, you go, you freaking get the guy out or you don't get the guy out. And it's like the level of total ignorance that, that has just like been revealed in front of my face. I'm like, yeah. Holy shit. This is like, this is something that you don't even, you don't even know that you don't know. Right. And, and to that point, one of the, one of the things that I spend some time on in the class because it is my background are the military aircraft and I've had people say how often am I going to encounter an F-16 you know in rural Orange County where I happen to reside well last year we had the F-8 the, uh, the F-16s from the from the, uh, the Air Force Thunderbirds with the headliners for the Orange County Air Show this year there's going to be a squadron of F-18s with the uh, Navy's Blue Angels and you can just type in air show crash insert any year you want and there's going to be that year's air show crash whether it was in the states or in europe or or somewhere on the planet and air shows are inherently dangerous high-speed aircraft uh, there was just one down in texas where a vintage plane and, and, and a bomber met at the wrong time and went down and now you've got a a whole populated spectator area where you got raining aircraft wreckage falling down all over everyone right grab and the I mean- run We've all seen Top Gun too, so you know. <laughs> all right. So listen, if you're if you're interested in this, obviously uh, Stephen is one of our instructors. Uh, he is able to bring you this content in a format that is good for your department. So regardless if you think you have an airport in your location, if you have airspace above you, you need this class. Um, and you can get in touch with us. Um, you can probably just contact me because I'm going to be the one that's talking to you at Bob at the and find out some more about this because this topic is evolving. It's uh, it's dynamic. And I think, honestly, it's something like Mike said, uh, you didn't even know you didn't know. So, uh, Steve, thanks for coming on and uh, giving us a couple of minutes of your time. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Hazmat Guys. You can find us at Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And don't be afraid to use that like or follow button. Or you can sign up for even more content from us at thehazmatguys.com. Here, you can subscribe so that we can connect you to even more great stuff. Your support is going to help us improve and build this awesome community even more. Yeah, and if you want to get to the next level, you won't want to miss our premium content. Our specialist level provides you with access to our entire catalog of shows, which is now over 300, an exclusive Facebook group, premium video with no ads, and so much more. Also, check the Hazmat Guys University link on our website. And don't forget, 
We are always interested in hearing about incidences or calls that you have experienced. We may bring you on the show to share that story. Reach us at feedback at the And remember, folks, don't just get on the job, get into the job.